you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. Amen. Amen, and welcome to You Have a Part to Play. If you're new, it's something we're doing each week this fall for six weeks where we're taking a look at a different cultural conversation point and seeing how we can be perhaps difference makers in those conversations. And this week is week five where we're talking about perhaps the most difficult topic of them all, if you couldn't tell by the tone and the scripture reading. But it's something that we need to look at today, something that we can't look away from, and that is the topic of modern day slavery, because slavery hasn't gone away in the world. It's just gone underground. I want you to know as we get into this, there is hope here. There's lots of hope. We'll get to some hope here at the end. There's great stories and dramatic rescues, but before we get to the hope, we have to look at it squarely in the face. And I can't tell you, as I did this this last week, as I looked at this, I studied this, researched this, how difficult and painful it was to to encounter the plight of the vulnerable. I mean, at one point, I just put my head down and cried. 
so challenging. It's so tough. So, but, but what does modern day slavery look like? Well, depending on who you are, where you're from, your context, when you hear that phrase, there's probably something that comes to mind as the way that modern day slavery gets expressed or is lived out. And all those are true. Modern day slavery, for example, it looks like, of course, human beings being trafficked. Best estimates are that 20 to 40 million people are trafficked globally right now. That means they're taken against their will and they're sold uh, for someone, for some illegal, sold to someone for some illegal purpose, most often for the purpose of sexual exploitation. And that happens most often in California and Texas. Out of the $150 billion trafficking industry, $100 billion of that comes actually from sex trafficking. And much of the demand for that, you should know this, is tied to pornography use. When a person clicks on, when a person consumes porn, there's a good chance that the person, the people they're viewing are, uh, that are being held against their will, being forced to act against their will, uh, and that you are, if you do that, you're unwittingly perhaps funding the prostitution rape of young boys and girls. Now, again, I'm not trying to beat anybody up with that, but it is a fact, and you should know it. I don't care what CNN says, by the way, there is no such thing as ethical porn. It's all wrong. It all contributes to a climate of exploitation. Modern-day slavery also looks like child labor. Best estimates are there's about 150 million children globally being held or forced against their will to scavenge garbage uh, dumps, to you know, wield machetes on farms, to go into combat as a child, while most American kids are just getting braces or trying to remember their locker combination. And modern-day slavery looks like people being imprisoned wrongly, either for speaking out against their own government, being imprisoned and held indefinitely for years because of run-ins with abusive law enforcement around the world. Here in the U.S., it looks like people, particularly our black brothers and brown brothers and sisters, sometimes being imprisoned indefinitely through the exploitation of a loophole in the 13th Amendment. If you've ever read, and you should, if you have it, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson, New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, or the novel The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Uh, you, that, you may know that's a true story based on a so-called prison reform school in Florida, which was actually a place which wrongly imprisoned young black men, abused them, then murdered them, then buried them in the back of the prison all the way up until 2011. If you read these accounts of stories, you see the devastating effects of that form of modern-day slavery in America. So, you know, what do we do with this? Well, on one hand, I hope you feel pretty mad. Yeah. Maybe a little, little or a lot. So I hope you get outraged by this. What do we, how do we respond? What do you say to all of this? Well, in the response to all of this and all the ways in which slavery, modern-day, shows up in the world, let me try to respond. Here's my word, biblically, best I can, by asking four questions. I think this issue... And Psalm 10 forces us to ask. So we're going to ask, try to answer four questions today. Here they are. Hopefully we'll work through them together. Number one, we're going to ask, what kind of a creature do we believe a human being is? Number two, what kind of a God do we say we believe in? Number three, what sort of a person is Jesus Christ? Like, where does he fit in all this? And finally, fourthly, what kind of a community, in light of this, ought the church to be? So humans, God. Jesus, 
church, all here from Psalm 10. Let's go and ask number one, begin by asking, what kind of a creature do we believe a human being is? And the reason that I'm asking this, we have to ask this, is because if people are the ones doing this, enslaving others, acting in these ways, all the way Psalm 10 even lists, then we should ask, why? What are people? Well, there are four basic attempts at an answer that cultures around the world have given us over history. We're going to look at it four real quick, move these together. First, there's the materialist narrative. That's the word I'm going to use, narrative. Uh, what that means is all that exists is matter, just material. The materialist narrative says we are basically highly evolved animals. Second, there's the spiritualist narrative. It says we are basically divine human beings squeezed into like flesh sacks for a few years. There's the humanist narrative, which says we are basically good. We just need some more money or education to help us get there. But apart from all of these stands, fourthly, the biblical narrative, which shines through in Psalm 10. And the biblical narrative goes like this. Follow me. In contrast to the materialist narrative, it says we are unique from animals because we bear the image of God. Second, in contrast to the spiritualist narrative, it says we are not inherently divine. Like Captain America said, there's only one God, ma'am. You know, I'm sure it's not me and not you. There's only one, the point is, supreme inherently divine being. And in contrast to the humanist narrative, the biblical narrative says humans are not inherently basically good. We are flawed broken. Here's the Bible word, sinful. We aren't just mistakers or messer-uppers. It insists we're sinners deeply into the core. And when you hear this, hang on, when you hear the Bible make this claim about you, about humanity at large, let me tell you what it is and what I think it's not trying to do. The Bible's claim, the biblical narrative's claim that we are sinful is not an attempt to make you feel guilty or make you feel bad. It Rather, it's an attempt To describe reality. It's a word used to describe the way things really are. The biblical narrative says if you don't understand this, if you don't believe this, if you think people are inherently basically good or they're inherently divine, he would say, the Bible would say, not only that you're naive, but you've set yourself up for a lifetime of crushing disappointment, and ultimately, perhaps most importantly, you won't have the basis for real social change in the world because you've misdiagnosed the problem. You'll never get to the right solution. A fascinating book to illustrate this came out not too long ago by an atheist author named Dave Chappelle. Not the Dave Chappelle you're thinking of, but a different Dave Chappelle. This guy wrote a book, and it was called A Stone of Hope. And in the book, he takes a look, a different kind of look, actually, at the civil rights movement of the 1960s, MLK, all those who organized and marched with him. And here is what he found. It's fascinating. He said, quote, While white liberals disliked segregation, they did almost nothing about it. They expected it to go away on its own. They were optimistic about human nature, the power of reason, the efficacy of education, and the inevitability of social progress. But black activists, deeply rooted in biblical faith, knew that power corrupts and that the human heart was sinful. The story of the civil rights movement is not, then, the triumph of liberal ideas of gradual progress, not at all. Northern liberals' faith in the power of human reason to overcome prejudice was at odds with the civil rights movement's goal of immediate change. But the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament lifted African-American activists to unprecedented solidarity and self-sacrifice. 
black leaders believed, as the Hebrew prophets believed, that they had to stand apart from society and institute dramatic changes to force an unbelieving world to abandon its, what's the word? Sinful ways. The sin of segregation. What's his conclusion? Well, it was that real social change only happened when people began with the biblical narrative that humans are made in the image of God, that we are worthy of love in a way. We are deserving of protection, equal protection under the law, and yet we're sinful, which means we must be called to change. When we look at modern-day slavery, first of all, it forces us to ask the question, who are we? Biblical narrative, Psalm 10 says we are loved and yet sinful. But second, when we look at modern day slavery, it also forces us to ask, number two, this question, what kind of a God do we say we believe in? And I'm asking this because the psalmist himself, likely David here, is asking this question from the jump, from the get-go in the first verse. Verse one, he asked, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Because it sure feels that way. Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's asking, like you ask, I ask, we ask, when we see or experience trouble, wrongdoing, God, who are you? What kind of a being are you? Well, let me give you three things now that the psalmist gives in response to his own question that shows us who the biblical God is. First, he says the biblical God allows people a freely chosen future. Here's what I mean. That is to say, no matter what kind of life you were born into, you still have a level of moral freedom to choose what kind of person you're going to be within the life you were born into. What that means is that your choices, oh, it's good news actually, your choices really do matter. Your choices are really real. Your choices carry real moral weight and your choices, up to a point, really determine your future. Now, some people, on the other hand, especially modern skeptics, they don't like this. Maybe you don't like to hear this. Uh, They don't like the answer to the problem of evil being that humans freely choose this and like this, many times love this. But the only, in response, the only real alternative we in the West, secular culture, has to that truth that God has from the beginning with Adam and Eve allowed us a moral choice and freedom The only alternative we've been able to conjure up is something called scientific fatalism. And the late, great Stephen Hawking, you know that guy, that name, Stephen Hawking, uh, was a staunch skeptic until he died last year. Uh, He believed in this, scientific fatalism. He believed that you and I, we really don't have a choice. Here's what he wrote. He said, though, quote, though we feel we can choose what we do, our biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and therefore are as determined as the orbits of the planets. It is hard to imagine how free will can operate if our behavior is determined by physical law, so it seems that we are no more than biological machines in that free will is just an illusion. He says, listen, you're just a machine. You've been switched on. Your play button's gotten pushed. Therefore, the implication of this is that the mass murderer, the brothel owner, The pedophile minister or priest, the abusive cop, isn't really at fault. 
They're just living out their programming. See, in modern scientific fatalism, responsibility, good, and evil all vanish. But in contrast to that view, Psalm 10 affirms that it is people who are freely choosing evil because of greed or pride or power. Look at this, 2, 3, and 4 verses in chapter 10. Verse, uh, yeah, Psalm 10 says, In his arrogance, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. He boasts about the cravings of his heart in his pride. The wicked man does not seek God. Psalm 10 affirms what we all know, that evil is not an illusion. Second, at the same time, though, Psalm 10 also insists that the biblical God is a God who sees all this evil. The writer, Psalm 10, we read it, we heard it. Uh, he lists all the heartbreaking ways people get abused, and then he affirms this. He says, oh, but you, God, don't you love it? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. There's a fascinating, actually, case study of this in the Bible, of this truth come to life. It's from Daniel chapter 5. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you know the story. Daniel chapter 5. We see Daniel, the Hebrew prophet. He's living out his last days. He's an old man in the Babylonian empire. As a young man, the Babylonians came in. They conquered his people, the Jewish people. They enslaved him. They carried him off. He never saw his family or homeland again. But on this one night in Daniel 5, God was about to show the rulers of Babylon... Where the Hebrew prophets have always said that God sees and God knows. On one night, October 12th, 527 B.C., to be precise. It was the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And on this night, the last ruler of Babylon, someone named Belshazzar, was having the party to end all parties. Belshazzar had heard the Persians were on their way to conquer him. So what does he do? Does he man the battle stations, send his troops out? No. He throws a party, a party to end all parties, a Babylonian rave. His wife, wives, concubines, friends, there's sex, endless alcohol being consumed as the party reaches a fever pitch. Belshazzar has brought out to him the gold and the silver goblets and the trinkets from all the peoples and nations his father had conquered that he had himself had enslaved, including Israel's. And he begins to drink from these goblets and toast his own life, to sing his own praises and the praises of other gods. Belshazzar was living out in this moment Psalm 1011. It's a picture of it, which says that the wicked man says to himself, God will never notice. God covers his face. He never sees. Oh, but in that moment, a hand appeared, floating hand, began to write four words on the wall. You say, well, Morgan, no wonder they're seeing strange stuff. They have been drinking all night, you know. But they weren't just imagining things as actually happened. Everybody in the room saw it. But no one had the answer to what those four words meant from Daniel 5. The words were mene, mene tekel, a parson. And the old prophet Daniel is called in. He's asked to interpret what's been written, and Daniel does it. He says it means three things. He says, Belshazzar, it means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom. It means that God has measured you and found you wanting. And number three, your kingdom will be given to another. And that night, it happened. Persians came in, the Babylonian Empire fell. God was saying this to Belshazzar, all of us. Even when you didn't think I saw, I saw. Even when you didn't think I was there, I was there. 
Even when he didn't think I saw something, I saw it all. He's saying I see it all, I measure it all, I weigh it all. No evil thing escapes my view. He's saying like my old southern grandmother used to say, nobody gets away with nothing. It's true for Belshazzar. It's true for you. It's true for me. Third, because of all that, because humans choose, because God sees. Third of all, the biblical God is a God who judges. Who judges. Uh Uh-oh, yeah, we're going to look at that word. And the writer of Psalm 10 affirms this. Look at verse 16. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. The the word here for perish is a Hebrew word, abad, and it literally means gulp. Hang on, white knuckle it. It means to destroy from divine judgment. Writers saying all the world is God's, he's the king, he owns it all, and because people have chosen evil, because God has seen all the evil, God will divinely judge all the evil. And by the way, if you are a God follower, a Christian person, that's the God we say we believe in, a God who judges. Now, right about now you're saying, er, mm, uh. I don't know. Morgan, this is what I don't like about church. This is what I don't like about the Bible. I grew up in a church. I talked about judgment. I ran away from all that. I ran straight here to Mosaic, and I'm getting the same thing again, man. Listen, you say, I just want a God of love. And if that's you, listen, I feel you, but hang on a second. If you feel like that, consider these words. From a Yale theologian, a guy named uh, Miroslav Volf, someone who was raised as a minority person in Croatia. He saw his own family being raped, his own family being murdered, his own people group being killed and uh, torn apart by violence. Volf lived through Psalm 10, and he writes this. If you don't like the idea of a God who judges, he writes, One could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, he writes, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's quote-unquote non-violence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. That we should bring down the powerful from their thrones seems responsible that God should do the same seems crude. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Here's what he's saying in effect. I think he's saying that a belief in judgment day is a gift to you. It's a gift to us because it can steer us ourselves away from violence. We can drop the sword ourselves. We can, uh, we can refuse to do, uh, abuse others because we know God sees. And it's a resource to console our hearts when we are victims, when we do experience violence or abuse ourselves because we know God sees and God will judge. Oh, but wait a minute. What does that mean? If in all the nations will perish from his land, if all the peoples will be judged... What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Look at this. Wolf goes on to say, You know, I originally resisted the idea of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target. I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others. (laughs) As if it were a weapon, I could aim at targets I particularly detested. 
It's God's wrath, not mine. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. And he's right. Which brings us now to number three. Well, I mean, where does Jesus fit in all this? What sort of a person is Jesus Christ? And this is who people are. This is who God are. What sort of a person is Jesus Christ? Well, he's going to tell us because many years after Psalm 10 was written, centuries later, Jesus of Nazareth was born into the world, into a world of oppression with a singular purpose for his life that no one else has ever had or could ever have. In, in Mark chapter 10, Mark's in a, one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. Jesus says this about himself about the sort of person he is. Look at this, Mark 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man, that's a claim to divinity from the book of Daniel, by the way, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying he's unlike the founder of any other faith. He's saying the founder of every other faith came to live, came to be an example, perhaps. But he's saying, I'm not like that. I've come to serve and to die. Why? He tells you. He said his purpose is to give his own life. Look at this. As a ransom. The word ransom means to buy the freedom of a slave or prisoner. He's saying, I've come to set the captives free. Oh, but he says, for many. That word means in the place of a substitution for many. He's saying it's going to be me for them. My life for theirs. My life for people. My life for humanity. His purpose was clear. He's saying he came to pay the ransom, pay the price to get human beings back, to pull them out of all the ways people are enslaved to sin, both literally to other humans and spiritually to themselves and to Satan. Oh, but since the slavery Jesus is dealing with isn't just human. It isn't only visible, but it's also cosmic because it's also spiritual because modern day slavery is also all about the ways that you and I are enslaved to the stuff in our hearts. He required a cosmic payment. He required his death on a Roman cross. And you know something? That is good news. That is such good news. That means that God is saying, oh, he is here and he sees because what kind of a person now is Jesus Christ? He's the kind of person then who is answering the cry of Psalm 10. The question of Psalm 10, when we ask God, where are you? God, why do you stand far off? Where are you? And God is saying through Jesus on that cross, he's saying, I'm right here. I'm right in the middle of it. I'm not far off, but I'm right here. I've come near, but in a way you could not have seen coming. He came both as a victim to show that God knows exactly what it looks like, what it feels like to the core to be victimized, to show you he knows what it's like to be held against his will on false charges, to be tortured without cause, to lose his dignity and humanity in the public square, and finally to die abandoned and alone by his friends and his family. Oh, but he at the same time, he came in it our place on that cross and in that moment through his suffering he's receiving what humans deserve for all their cruelty all their sin their wickedness for their willing ignorance perhaps for the plight of the vulnerable on the cross can you see he was both the victim and he was receiving the just judgment that the victimizer deserves see he was a ransom for us and that is good news today but he came in our place to set us free from our spiritual slavery to self and from satan and from the just wrath of god hear me because all real love is substitutionary sacrifice all real love is substitutionary sacrifice every time every time you love someone you risk yourself god came and he risked himself for us every time 
time you really love someone, you give of yourself. And God has given of himself to us in Christ. And when you forgive someone, listen, it doesn't cost them. It costs you. And so God in Jesus was forgiving us people at infinite cost to himself. All because of love. And to become a Christian, oh, means you put your trust and your faith and your allegiance towards the one who went as a ransom for you in your place. Now, in light of who Jesus is, that's who people, God, Jesus, in light of all this then, let's ask, we have to, well, what sort of a community ought the church to be? Ought we to be? Well, about a hundred years ago, there was a woman by the name of Dr. Kate Bushnell. She was a Christian uh, evangelist. She led many people to Christ, a leading evangelist in her uh, organization, whose life changed when she began to hear about the plight of impoverished girls being held against their will and forced into prostitution in logging towns in Michigan and Wisconsin. And what she found was this. When the girls tried to escape and asked the police for help, many times she found that the local law enforcement returned those runaways the brothels. She found that the owners and the patrons of such establishments exercise enough political power, surprise, surprise, to prevent legal action against the brothels. She found that the local doctors supported their existence because their frequent examination of the women provided them with an additional source of income. And she found that local businessmen liked that the brothels provided a boost to the local economy. And Dr. Mushnell tried to find someone, anyone to investigate, but no one would do it. Finding no one to take the risk, she risked herself. And facing tremendous personal danger, she infiltrated and undercover, like a spy, scores of brothels. Interviewed hundreds of women being held in bondage. She did this personally. And she finally reported her findings at a Christian women's conference in Chicago. And of course, the state of Wisconsin vehemently denied her findings. The state inspector even attempted to discredit her by doing what sexist men have been doing for generations, which was to accuse Dr. Bushnell of unchastity because she had been in the brothels herself. When she appeared before the Wisconsin State Legislature, she had to be escorted by police because of the threats against her. And standing that day before the assembly to give her testimony, she initially felt overwhelmed. She was the only woman in the room, but being a woman of prayer, trusting God, she lifted her heart to God. And this was her testimony, quote, she said, Whereupon the door opened quietly, and about 50 ladies of the highest social position at the state capitol filed in and stood all about me. There were no seats for them. They stood all the time I talked, and I had plenty of courage as I realized how good God was to send them. And despite the attacks on Dr. Bushnell and her study, Newspapers reported that the whole country began to be agitated by what she discovered. Her findings were confirmed by private and public researchers. And the result of her work, thankfully, was the passage of a bill in the Wisconsin legislature that finally dealt the death blow to the scourge of forced prostitution. And the bill was appropriately labeled, guess what, the Kate Bushnell Bill. Later, she took her Christian witness, along with other women, to China and to India, where she protested against the British government for their complicity and human and sex trafficking as well. So what sort of a community ought we to be? Well, I think a community, that word she used, courage, 
A community of courage, a community of Dr. Kate's, people who are informed, come on, people who are informed, who allow their conscience to be pricked by what they see and hear, and people who do both evangelism, like Kate, and fight for what's right, like Kate. That is to say, we are, we are, we become a community that rescues people from hell in this life and from hell in the life to come. We're a church who pulls people out of fires, hells, wherever they are. I'll close with this thought from Gary Hogan, his book, Good News About Injustice. He writes this. The great miracle and mystery of God is that he calls me and you to be a part of what he is doing in history. He could, of course, with no help from us, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with lifeless stones, feed the entire world with five loaves and two fish, heal the sick with the hem of his garment, and release all the oppressed with his angels. Instead, God has chosen us to be his hands and doing those things in the world that are important to Him. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.